Good morning. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. Hey, hey. So uh, does this mean uh, because the, everybody's getting paid double time, we, um, we have to do this in half the time? That's right. Talk fast. <laughs> this is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Hold the phone. Something's missing. What, what's going on? <laughs> okay, do it again. Did we? Do it again. Might Okay. Do it again. I'm ready. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Much better nice the second time. Yeah. Uh, hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today in the anti-gloom Zoom room, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Happy Canada Day. Mr. Steve Barkley. Good day, eh? And Ryan, who else is here? Joining us today is the one and only Albert Ruel. Woo! <laughs> then there better not be another one. My God, the world couldn't <laughs> take it. <laughs> yeah, I thought we'd get Albert on to kind of share a little bit about who he is and his journey through blindness. Albert has recently retired, so I thought, what a better time to get him on before he leaves. Before he leaves, before, before he leaves, gone. where are you going? Sales yeah. to the Grey Havens or something? Like, what's going on? Well, we we have a twenty year old motorhome here. We got to We've got to try and wear that thing out. <laughs> yeah, that poor old thing. It's getting old too. So. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know what what a what a ride it's been. This whole uh, GTT thing. You know the the most recent uh, work I've done, which has been just a, a total hoot. So. It's going to be a little tough to disconnect and unplug and and go and find something else to do. And I'm I'm really afraid of my my new boss. We sat out on the deck the other night and she started pointing at all kinds of things in the yard. We got to do this and we've got to do that. And I'm thinking, God, I think I want to go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> the the ever expanding honeydew list. Uh huh. Yeah, I was really afraid of my first email at 4:31 p.m. yesterday. It would be from her with with an extensive list, but it didn't come so. <laughs> at any rate. <laughs> She'll give you a couple, a couple days rest. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but you know what, it, what, a, as I was saying to you earlier, Ryan, what, what a interesting transition or, you know, some, some really interesting reflections have sort of flowed through my head over these last few weeks as I've been, sort of planning this retirement and moving things on to uh, to other people because uh, as you guys know and, and you know I've been working for the Canadian Council of the Blind for the last it's almost six years I started with them in late October uh, six years ago so just shy of six years with them um, and it, and it's been a really intensive time of you know just really sort of helping to develop a program that Kim Kilpatrick had dreamt up the get together with technology program 
and um, you know, just some of the some of the fun we've had and some of the growing pains we've been through. But you know, we've finally built a, a program and and brought on some amazing volunteers like uh, Jerry Chevalier and you know Brian Bebo and just you know and, and like yourself, Ryan, you've been helping out with some of the uh, some of the calls we've done here over the course of uh, this COVID lockdown. But you know, we finally the the program is getting some international notoriety. It's um. You know, it's being noticed by the Top Tech Tidbits uh, weekly newsletter. So, uh, you know, it was really, really a warm and fuzzy feeling as I just sort of walked away from this thing um, to, to move on into retirement and hopefully getting a whole lot of things done in the woodshop. But, uh, but it's been a heck of a ride. Well, and let's, let's kind of rewind a little bit here. Um, you know, you, you haven't always been blind, similar to myself. And so, you know, at, at what stage in your life or at what age or how did you, how did you become blind? You know, that's a, we never did figure that out. I've been to the Mayo Clinic and I've seen some of the best eye specialists on the West Coast and they never were able to figure out why or how. Somewhat something to do, I think, with uh, autoimmune, maybe. It's the body fighting off its own tissues, but the blood vessels that feed the retina in, uh, in my eyes started to swell up. The inner liner of those blood vessels would swell up and um, cl- you know, close themselves off, and then the blood vessels would burst open and hemorrhage inside the eye. And so that, that went on. That started, uh, I started to notice a blurriness in my vision when I was about 21. And, um, you know, went, did, did the whole thing, you know, half of my family or most of my family wore glasses. So I thought, oh, well, there you go, Albert, your turn. So if I went to the optometrist, he kind of looked around and he says, yeah, no, he says, you, there's something wrong. You're not seeing as well as you should, but it, glasses won't help. It's not a refraction issue. So he sent me off to the doctor, got the whole checkup. No, you've got a clean bill of health. And so that guy sent me off to an ophthalmologist. And as soon as Dr. McCarricker took a peek in there, he could see all of this, this swelling of the blood vessels. So he knew what was going on, but, you know, all the way to the Mayo Clinic and never did figure out why it was happening. And are you the only one in your family this has happened to? Yep. Um, my father in his mid-80s certainly experienced, uh, started to experience macular degeneration. And that went on, you know, he lived to be 90s. He died at 96 and you know, pretty much had lost all of his central vision by then. Uh, I do know one of my older brothers now, he's 74, and he's starting to experience the early early stages of MAC degen. And we all had a bit of glaucoma, or not glaucoma, but um, cataracts mm-hmm. uh, with one one or two of my siblings. So, and, uh, you know, there's 15 of us kids in the family, so th- there's a large pool to to go back to, but no, nothing else. Uh, you know, and all, both my parents are from families of 14 each, and there's no history of it there either. So it's just one of those weird things that popped in out of nowhere, and there it is. You know, so that that started at, 20, at age 21, and I, what the doctors did in those days, they, they started doing laser work to my right eye just to stop those blood vessels from hemorrhaging so that... Um, so we could try and save at least one eye, but they left the left eye alone and just watched what had happened. And gosh, by the time I was uh, 23, uh, that left eye was gone altogether. It didn't work at all. Mm. And But they gave me another 10 years of slowly declining vision 
like I say, for about 10 or 12 years. I think by the time I was in my mid-30s, the vision was gone altogether and, you know, I only had uh, light perception. And so at that time, you were working in the forestry, is that correct? Yeah, I was always, uh, I worked in the plywood uh, plywood plant in Port Alberni and I worked in the pulp and paper mill uh, as well. But, you know, that was... You know, because of the vision loss, I had to leave that job. Well, I mean, it was August 3rd, 1978 was the last day I drove a car. And it's also the last day I worked in the pulp mill as a, as a laborer in, in the wood department, the wood preparation department. Um, so I was on long-term disability there for a number of years. And then in 1985, 86, uh, 1985, I was able to convinced the mill uh, that a low vision guy could be a janitor at the pulp mill. Uh, it, it was really a kind of a weird thing. My, my wife at the time, she worked at the mill in the office. And so I was on long-term disability sitting at home. We had, we had one child. So I was the, you know, stay at home father and I was the chief cook and bottle washer and, and uh, janitor at home and the laundry guy and, you know, cut the grass and did all those things. And she came home from work one day and she says, you know, you do all this stuff around here. There's no reason why you couldn't do that at the mill and get paid for it. And so I started a, a trek there of trying to convince the mill that I could be a low vision janitor. And uh, the interview went something like this. They said, well, if you can't see very well, like, how are you going to know what part of the floor, like where the confetti is? And how are you going to know what, what the vacuum is? So how about I just vacuum the entire building? every night <laughs> oh okay that'll work he said and he said well what about the toilets like how are you going to know which you know which ones have to be cleaned i said how about i just clean them all every night <laughs> oh, okay that'll work he said you know all these fingerprints in the mirrors here in the main office for you i said how about i just give them a quick little scrub every night and the whole interview kept going like that and at the end he says i, I can't find any reason why i shouldn't give you this job he said <laughs> So I, I so I was I spent five years uh, as a visually impaired uh, janitor at the pulp and paper mill and until uh, until the vision failed altogether and and it just wasn't wasn't safe for me to be there and and you know what happened later on in life and this is part of the really cool thing of working in the in the the blindness field is that that supervisor who hired me then. Uh, was a member of our white cane club at the end of toward the end of his life uh, in Port Alberni, oh, wow. so I, I got to uh, to meet up with with Mo uh, later on, uh, you know, on the other side of the table. Um, it's the same with uh, my ophthalmologist, Dr. McCarricker, became a client of uh, of mine later on when I worked for the CNIB. So a lot of these guys, you know, you walk through all of this stuff in those early days, and then they come back to seek your support and, uh, and advice later. So, so that, was, that was the pulp mill days. And, and that's when I sort of transitioned uh, right around my mid-30s. You know, it was one of those things. That I went through um, a, a bit of a reflective period here a couple of weeks ago because my youngest son, Adam, just turned 34. And I was looking back at my own life, and where was I at 34? And, um, and that's the period of time. You know, by then, we had two kids. Uh, one, uh, Evan, was born in 1983, and Adam was born in 1986. So here we are now, 
you know, 1990, um, I'm going in for some surgery. The, the one eye that was still somewhat functioning, all of a sudden glaucoma had gotten in there and really made a mess of things. Lots of pain and, and lots of really quick visual decline. So we went in, the eye drops weren't working anymore, so in we went for a surgery to put a shunt in my right eye to hopefully try and save some vision. It did manage to save the eye, but it didn't save the vision. Um, and, and so here, I, I, I'm one of these guys who's always been afraid of the dark, and still am, but I'm only afraid of the dark at night, which is kind of weird. But uh, So here I was for 10 years, just constantly so fearful of total blindness because, oh my God, if I go totally blind, I'll be living in the dark, you know, day and night, I'll be, I'll be afraid all the time. And that was sort of the expectation and the fear I lived with for that 10 or 12 year period. And when I woke up from that hospital, from that, that surgery in VGH in Vancouver, it was the thing I'd feared the most. When the doctor says, you know, Albert, we saved the eye, but you know, the, I'm afraid that vision is not going to be coming back. And, and having come to that realization that day, you know, this was the day I'd feared for so long. Mm -hmm. And it was the biggest sense of relief I'd ever felt in my life. Because now it was finally over. I had nothing more that I needed to worry about. Now I could just, you know, sort of find some way of just moving on with life. Um, and that's not at all what I had expected. That, that was so strange. I think for three months after that, I kept pinching myself like, is this real? Can I really be feeling that relieved that it's finally over? How come I'm, I'm not as scared as I, I thought I would be? You know, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, whenever we hear stories about, you know, different people's stories about vision loss, um, I always feel like there's, there's such a stark difference between the two ways in which vision loss can happen. Because, you know, it, as it say the case of Ryan, for example, it can happen very suddenly. Um, but then again, it can also happen very gradually. And I feel like the human response to those two situations is is very different mm -hmm. um and i wouldn't necessarily i wouldn't think that either one is necessarily preferable they're just very different <laughs> yeah it, it, i always find that funny well at least you were able to see you know that you've got all those memories and i'm thinking well that that's an interesting decision because it's it's not everybody's reality uh, you know, somebody who's never seen is not less happy than I am because they've never seen a tree or a, a moon in the sky. All of that, in, in my mind, anyway, is just a decision we make anyhow. You know, because right. I've met people who have let a hangnail ruin their entire day, and and I've met people who have let blindness ruin their entire lives. Mm -hmm. But it's not blindness that did it; it's a decision they made about it that, right. that created it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I, I was really fortunate. I don't know how my first wife, uh, how, how she came to this level of intelligence or uh, I don't, know, you don't even know what to call it. But, you know, when she was I was I was 23. She was 22, we, you know, just in the process of getting married. And uh, this was, you know, my vision was starting to fail. And you know, I was sitting there one day in the living room just having a, a good cry fest, just a, a good pity party. And, um, and I, you know, I kind of you know, blubbered out, you know, can you get me a beer? You know, and, and she got up dutifully and went around 
out of the living room and headed for the kitchen. All of a sudden, she stopped and she looked back and she said, you know, you don't have a piano tied to your back. And we are planning to have kids later in our lives. So if something like this happens to them, well, what will you show them? Like, what kind of a role model do you plan to be as you wander on through this, uh, this whole thing? And uh, God, I, I despised her for that. <laughs> that mean little thing she said that day, but holy cow, the number of times in my life that I've gone back to that statement and, and thanked her mm. for it, because boy, it, it's been um, it's been one of those things, you know, if, if I'm struggling to get out of bed in the morning or resisting taking off and, and heading downtown or, or doing the thing that I wanted to do, if, if fear is starting to hold me back, I've gone back to that statement um, many, many times, so... I thanked her for it. I, you know, I haven't actually thanked her for it in person. Maybe I will. I want to do that one day. You know, one of those sort of de defining moments, I think. And so how, at one point, you started working for the CNAB in northern BC. So how did that transition occur? Were you getting services from them at the time? And then there was an opening and you went over there? Or how did that come to be? Well, when I... You know, because I'd received some services from CNIB, uh, Phil Croson, who was my counselor um, in the early days, uh, you know, before him, it was um, Isabel Beveridge. Yeah, I think that's her name. Elizabeth? No, Isabel Beveridge. Um, and Don, Don Jones was a, a career counselor. So, you know, I'd had a few services from some of the Victoria CNIB folks. And so when I went back to college, when I was done with my career in the pulp mill, and, and let's let's just back that up a bit. So let's go back and look at this, the, the year that I was 34. So I'd had this surgery, went on through that year in the recovery, noted by the end of the year that things were just not going well at home. And, and one of the, the things I've said quite often in my career, if, if your marriage, if your relationship is not rock solid, really strong when you walk into a disability like blindness, it may not survive. It's one of those things that we we see a pretty significant divorce rate in in the disability movement because boy, it it changes everything about about one's life and relationships. And so, my marriage also came to an end that year. So my vision's gone. I I can no longer work at the mill, and the marriage comes to an end. And we got these two little boys, and I just thought, boy, I just can't sit here. Like, you know, I couldn't get a job in Port Alberni anywhere. It's a forestry town, uh, you know, a blind guy in his early 30s. I only had a grade 10 education. There just wasn't much was ever going to happen there. So if I was going to find, if I was going to find freedom and success, it was going to have to be somewhere else. And so I moved to Nanaimo and went to Malaspina College. I did a one-year social service uh, worker certificate. Uh, I had previously in the early 80s, I'd done a, a personnel and supervisory management diploma program from Douglas College. Uh, and so, you know, armed with, with those two tools, I decided that I had to do a six-week practicum, so let's go take a look at CNIB from the inside. I had experienced the organization uh, from the outside. So I went there just to do the practicum, and lo and behold, as I was in the Vancouver office working with Larry Archuk and those guys in the um, in the fund development department, a job came up, the district manager job in uh, in Prince George. And so Rick Oaks, the, the manager in CNIB in Vancouver in those days, took me out to lunch one day, uh, a little restaurant down on False Creek. 
And he says, Albert, you got to apply for this job in Prince George. And I said, gosh, Rick, you're nuts. And all I've got is a, a one-year social service worker certificate program. You know, if anything, I want to come to work for the organization in a, in a counseling role and then maybe you know work my way up to something like that. But at any rate, we decided, sure, okay, I'll go ahead and apply just to get the experience, just you know, the interview experience and all the rest of it. I'll be damned if they didn't offer me the job. <laughs> so the uh, summer of 1992, I uh, packed my bags and headed on up to Prince George. And I always say I did a seven-year sentence in Prince George once. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was the start of it. And having grown up here on Vancouver Island, anything that gets to 35 or 36 below, and my deep freeze is only set at yeah. 19 below. Like, what the <laughs> heck was I doing there? <laughs> so yeah, seven years in, in PG, and then um, and then I had a, an opportunity to transfer down down here to the coast. They had a a job available in Vancouver, and they had the one in Victoria available. And uh, even though the Vancouver one paid more, there was a slam dunk. I, I, I came right back to the island and, and grabbed that job in Victoria. So here's here's a real quick question about that. Then, so seeing that you've sort of played a role in CNIBs in very different um, types of areas, um, one being rural and, and one being urban. What's kind of the, the sort of the difference between those two experiences? Because that's something that I've always kind of been curious about. The one big thing, Rob, that sticks in my mind, I'm mean, just trying to find a delicate way to say it. In Prince George, I... You know, I used to jump on a bus at 11 o'clock at night uh, to head on out to Prince Rupert or maybe going north to Fort St. John. Always took that midnight bus because, you know, I was in my 30s, early 40s. I could, um, I could sleep on the bus overnight, get there in the morning, have a quick shower and a shave, and then I'd be able to work all day. And, uh, and that, was, that was the way we operated in that rural environment. I remember what some of my staff, you know, I'd have to say sometimes, for gosh sakes, you can't see 12 people in a day. That's insane. You're working way too long hours. But, you know, they kept saying, but we only get to this town once or twice a year. So okay. we, we've got to see who we can see. And so these folks, they, they just work their tails off. Long, long hours, insane hours. And then I got to Victoria, and the question was, what do you mean you can only see three people a day? Like, well, what's going on? But, you know, I, I remember one of the managers in Toronto used to say to me, oh, Albert, so you're working in Victoria now. Um, one warning for you, the only place to not be standing at 4.30 p.m. is anywhere near the door. You'll get trampled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that to me, I just, I, I couldn't believe the the stark difference there was in the city as opposed to up in rural northern British Columbia. You see that everywhere across the country. Every every CNIB, every office has a different culture and try try as they might at national office to try and make it a you know a single homogenous culture across the country. It just doesn't work. There's, no. there's too many, too many regional differences. Yeah, there certainly are. I, and, and, you know, I, and I think, too, you know, some of the, the work ethic, like where does it come from? I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it just was really, really strange. But uh, And I bet you if I'd have gone to Vancouver, I'd have found a similar culture to Victoria, but 
but different again, you know, because we saw it when we did uh, management meetings. You know, there was all of us who came from out of town, come into the big city, and every time there was a break, you know, when you've got an opportunity as a team to sort of team build and get to know each other and, and that kind of stuff, all the locals would scoot back to their offices and check their voicemail or check their email, and then all of us out of towners, we'd be we'd be kind of hanging out around the, the coffee table, you know. <laughs> And that kind of stuff happened after hours too. You know, it was all the out of towners who were sitting in the hotel having having a drink or having a meal together, and all the locals would scoot off home. But I mean, it seems to me like, there, and a lot has changed. Certainly, you know, technology-wise, and even like some of the scope of the services. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing that really is still a real problem is geography, and it's just that uh, there are people in remote areas here in BC, because BC is, is so large, um, that that just don't have easy access to the services that they may require. Yes, that's always been a huge issue. And you know, back in the day, gosh, it was before my time, there were days where CNIB staff used to go out and visit every one of their clients at least once every year. Well, you sure don't, uh, you sure can't operate like that no. today. And, and in fact, what, you know, what's this COVID thing taught us? I think it's taught us some, some really interesting and innovative ways to deliver service. You know, the whole Zoom call, conference call system, the, the, the training over Zoom and, and using it to remote into people's computers, or at least in the technology training arena anyhow. We've, um, you know, I, I think, thank Thank God for COVID because we're we're certainly finding some very different ways and better ways in some in some regards. Well, to deliver service. yeah, I mean, and that's what that what we've kind of been saying here for the past few weeks, or I guess it's a few months now. Months now, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's in a way, it's made us have to innovate, like have to innovate, mm -hmm. um, and that can be a really good thing. Um, and it, that's something that hopefully continues post-COVID whenever that happens to, to be. But I mean, what's your take on that? Like using something like IRA to give out O&M instruction, is that in the ballpark? I don't, I, I don't know. I, that, that specific one, I'm, I'm not convinced that it would work really well I, yeah who good god uh, what a what an I interesting thought yeah i don't think anybody as an o&m instructor would be willing to send somebody out onto the street when all they've got is you know maybe a 30 degree field of view in front of them and can't provide meaningful feedback about the environment yeah but that's that would be that would be really tough to do that's been one of the issues that i faced when i lost my sight is you know living in kamloops at the time you know i would get o&m services once a month um, maybe a couple days, of, you know, that week when the O&M instructor could come out. But like Albert's saying, you know, services came out of the major centers. So unless I was living in Vancouver or Kelowna, you know, I wasn't getting the services I needed, whether it was Braille, O&M. So th there has to be a way at some point where we can leverage technology to, you know, enhance the services that are offered. And, and I think it's the, it, there's a vast difference between orientation 
and then you know the the early days of orientation and mobility. Like I've never called a CNIB O and M instructor to come and help me learn a new route. I had I used their services, and I was living in Port Alberni when I first picked up the white cane. And I got a couple of quick lessons from uh, from Larry Bieberly. He came up to Port Alberni, and that was enough to get me started. I still had a bit of shadow vision, so I, I could, you know, still identify crosswalks, and so I, I did okay. I, I buzzed around Port Alberni. I took the bus. I walked. I did everything I needed to do. But when I moved to Nanaimo, now all of a sudden I'm living living in an apartment. Um, I got to get to a college. I've got to learn the bus system. I've got to find grocery stores and a bank and, you know, all the things that I need to survive. And thankfully, Larry was willing to put other people on hold because here you've got a, you know, mid-30s person heading for college desperately needs um, the O&M instruction. So he was coming up to Nanaimo twice a week for a month. And we did, uh, you know, we did everything I needed to do. And I was ready to go to school, you know, the beginning of um, of September, right after the long uh, the long weekend, and and that was also the time when I met Steve Barkley and Aroga, because mm-hmm. Steve delivered a a computer in beginning of August that year, and God, the number of times I called that toll free number to say, <laughs> how the heck do I turn this thing on? How do I shut it up? I, <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot of time on the phone. Prince George. Yeah, we had met in Prince George. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah, no, I, no. I came up there to do exhibits when you and Julie Bunn and were up there. Yeah, but you, you also were the guy in because uh, this was summer of 1992. You were working for Aroga by then. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. No, because I, you guys sent me a little laptop computer and the Arctic, Softvert, uh, screen yeah, reader, software, screen reader. Yeah, yeah, because. Yeah. Yeah, that computer got shipped to me. I, I opened up the box and I didn't have the first clue how to how to do anything. Um, so my brother drove down from Courtney and he hooked the whole computer up, got everything running, but didn't know doggone, didn't know how to get me started uh, with all that screen reader. So we I hired a an instructor from Malspina College. She was the word perfect trainer teacher you know, computer teacher at Malspina College, uh, she was off for the summer, so I hired her. I paid her for 18 hours of instruction over the course of that, that month. And um, and then a lot of phone calls to Aroga to find out what the heck I'm supposed to do to get this thing to talk to me and use the cassette tape tutorials that came with it. And, by you know, at the end of that month, I was, I was ready to rock and roll and haven't looked back since. But yeah, no, I called I called Aroga an awful lot during that month of August in 1992. That's no, okay. You probably weren't as bad as that Ryan Flurry character. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, just eh? be glad you didn't get hired. But well, but, go, but going back to that O and M thing though, you know, so the early days, like it, I think it's absolutely. I can't imagine that there'd be another way to do it, but but face to face, one on one, to get somebody started, to get yeah the problem problem solving skills and and stuff but ever since then though i've never well other than than and once i used julie bun up in prince george to go and figure out a new route but i was working at cnib so who else would i call but since then i you know i just uh, i use i know enough about mobility and i know enough about how i operate in the world i can use anybody to help me figure out a new route i don't need an O&M instructor so in that regard i would i wouldn't hesitate to use <clears throat> Ira or be my eyes or 
FaceTime video, you know? Well, and I really see that the, the <clears throat> really only way that that particular problem is ever going to be solved is going to be through technology. Um, Robot you know, guide dogs. You know, That's it, what I'm waiting for. It, it's... <laughs> and, and, and really, COVID, COVID has required a lot of organizations to look at their services and adjust accordingly. Um, you know, I don't know specifically what CNIB is doing these days. I know certainly they have a lot of virtual programming like um, a lot of other organizations. Um, but really, I mean, if, if that's kind of the only option, I think the only thing that, that really these organizations can do is, is take a, a real look at the technology that's, that's available and tr just try to make it work. Yes, and they certainly, they will never do things the same again, uh, you know, the same as they used to. But I, I, I'm still convinced, though, that O&M and a lot of the low vision assessment stuff is still going to have to be done face-to-face -face in yeah. people's homes. Um, yeah. You know, we've tried these rehab kitchens when I worked at CNIB and tried to bring the client to to our kitchen and try and teach them. And it just doesn't work as well as figuring it out in your own in your own space. So we'll be able to do some things virtually. And and and, and I mean, you even look at, at the the crazy the crazy making stuff I used to do when I was working for GTT. You know, I'd, I'd spend three hours on a on a bus to get to Victoria to facilitate a two hour meeting and then spend three hours on the bus going back home. Like how insane can that possibly get? And and so we're certainly I know the GTT program is never going to operate the same, having gone to the the virtual meetings and sessions and that sort of thing. So everybody's going to do things differently. We're just going to have to find those those areas where you have to be face to face, one on one. Um, I recently tried to help somebody learn the just the basic gestures on a on an iPhone that had been donated to her. I just had a terrible time trying to get that happening over the phone. You know, that just needs some one-on-one, face-to-face -face for the first couple of sessions until they start to walk on their own, and then you can go to, to virtual training sessions. But I still think we're, we, we just have to be careful not to go too virtual, but yet we, we can certainly get away from all of this travel to get to people uh, as often as we have done. Well, let's talk about your, your training and getting involved with the CCB and GTT. You know, how did, how did that come about? Thank God and Greyhound, CNIB fired me in 2006. <laughs> I, honest to God, I, you know, I had been in, in office, uh, you know, in administration, and that's not where my strengths lie. That's not where my, my mojo works. And so when when that became obvious, then they moved me over to fund development. If you're going to work in fund development, you doggone well better be able to raise at least your salary. And it's really helpful if you can raise enough money to pay somebody else's salary as well. And no, that didn't work for me either. And so after a couple of years of that, they decided, you know, Albert, it's just not working out the way we would have liked. And and I'd already spent six or eight months looking for other work um, because I knew I was a square peg in a round hole. It just was not coming together. So they offered me a piece, uh, an envelope with a paper in it. And they said, if we give you this, would you go away? And I said, mm-hmm, yep. And, and so off I went. And right at that time, uh, you know, Rick Oaks, who was the guy who had talked me into coming to work for CNIB to begin with, he's now... You know, had had left CNIB and I was retired, or 
and um, he was really heavily involved with the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. It was called the National Federation of the Blind Advocates for Equality in those days. But they were looking to hire their first national equality director is what they called it. <clears throat> and I came, you know, I went through the, the application process and Rick talked the board into hiring me. And I kept saying, you know, if you guys are looking for a fundraiser, I'm not your guy, right? But if you're looking for membership development and, and that sort of thing, maybe I can do something. And they were, they were convinced that I was the right guy, so I went to work for them. Um, but that only lasted 11 months because it was pretty darned obvious that when now all of a sudden you're paying, <clears throat> you're paying out this salary and you've got very little revenue being generated, this gig isn't going to last very long. So I only lasted 11 months there and they had to, they had to cut that short because they didn't hire a fundraiser. They, you know, I doubled their, their membership and you know, dramatically increased the number of chapters so I, I did a lot of good work when I was there, but it wasn't the work they needed. You know, and, I, and I kept saying to them, you, you need to have some kind of a service. In those days, I was trying to convince them that something like GTT is what the AEBC needed. We needed to become more relevant to the members day to day, you know, because just high level advocacy is, is kind of fluffy and airy fairy. And it, how does it, you know, how does it change my life here and now today? And so I kept saying, if you want to, if you want to grow this organization, you have to build something in that people are, are going to flock to. It's going to have to be some kind of a service like technology or something. They still haven't done that. Yeah. But, um, you know, so that job lasted 11 months. And then just as that came to an end, the CCB had a contract, Canadian Council of the Blind had a contract to provide mobile computer training across Canada. They were setting up these two labs with 10 computers in, in plastic crates. And we were going to take this out into the hinterland to different communities all over the country. So I applied for that, thought that, you know, I might be able to get a couple of weeks work here and there, you know, get some, get some paid work. And, uh, and before the training, the, we had one week training in Ottawa in January of 2008. And by the time that week was over, Jim Prowse had come to me and said, Albert, we want to hire you full time to work, to work this program out in the West. So I, I, I just about said no. Nah, no, of course I didn't. <laughs> you know, I, I grabbed it because that was exactly what I wanted to be able to do. It, it, I love that job. I love that program. And, um, and off I went. I, I did the computer training thing from... Winnipeg to the to the west coast uh, in several different cities back and forth. I think we ran. Uh, I think I on my end. I think we did about two hundred people through that program in the course of the eighteen months uh, that I was that I was doing that job. So that that takes me now into sort of the fall of two thousand and nine, and that job's about to come to an end. And I had been doing. I had been doing some volunteer work with a, a remember that program, uh, what was it? Equi EATI, Equipment and Assistive Technology Initiative, a funding program for cross-disability um, folks in the province of BC. I'd been doing some volunteer work while I was working for the CCB on the computer training stuff. And lo and behold, they started looking for people to work in that program. So I was already plugged in and connected, so I applied for that job and um, and got that gig. 
and worked for them for four and a half years as long as they had that funding. And so from through that that process, I learned a lot more about technology. I learned a lot more about cross-disability assistive technology, not just blindness. Um, so learned a lot, had a great deal of fun, put a lot of good equipment in, in people's hands. Uh, some equipment got into hands that didn't use it much, but, you know, for the most part, it was... Um, it was a really rewarding gig for four and a half years. That was a really interesting program because I remember they opened that up to to mental health, and that really <laughs> that really lent a whole new level of challenges to to the program. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I remember one client. You'll probably remember her too, Albert, who who just wanted everything, and the it was all based on self assessment and and. Uh, uh, you had to have justifications for it. And boy, could she come up with justifications, but I don't know that she needed a lot of the things that she ended up getting. Yeah, yeah, it was really hard to determine want from need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there were some really cool, innovative things done there, but um, I, it's not a surprise that it got shut down because it perhaps became a little bit too much of a, of a want instead of need in many cases. And, you know, I was probably guilty of some of that too. Some of the, the clients I put through that program, you know, found out years later that some of that equipment didn't actually get very many miles put on it. So, but it, it was, but, it but was at a the same time, at the same time, at least they had options. Yes. You know, which they didn't have before that program. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's essential. I, I think a funding program, uh, you know, it's sad to see what, what ADP is happening, how, what's happened to ADP in Ontario you know, some of that equipment shouldn't even be on that list anymore. And so many yeah. bits of equipment ought to be on that list and it'll never get there because it's such a, a slow to move uh, program. And it's something the government just has no interest in shoring up and, uh, and advancing. So, but, you know, it, we, we des- we're desperate for an assistive devices and, and even not even the, the equipment is, is not the most important thing. It's the bloody training. You know, we just don't have enough support and training, funded support, professional training to really get people up and, and running and really get them ready for work. And right now with this COVID shutdown, there's this is the most important time to put some proper training out there and get people really ready because we're going to be able to work from home a heck of a lot more than we've ever been able to before. And so that opens up uh, some opportunities for people who, you know, can stay in their community, don't have to move to the big city to, to land a job. And, um, yeah, but we, we don't have enough technology funding. People are, are applying for jobs and they, they don't even know how to run the equipment effectively enough to, to really challenge for some of these jobs. So, yeah, we need to put tools in people's hands and teach them how to use the darn thing so they can be ready. Is that one of the reasons Kim started the GTT? Was she recognized that there was a need for training? That's precisely it. Yep. I mean, she was, God, that was in 2011. I think she came up with that dream child. She'd, you know, just finished one contract job and, you know, was looking for work and then all this technology that was, that was coming out and how do you learn this stuff? And it was her and her former, her retired vision teacher from her days in the school system. They had remained friends um, after, after school 
And so, you know, they were trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we help each other? How do we support each other in this thing? So they came up with this notion of uh, get together with technology. Let's just invite a whole bunch of blind folks to come in the room and let's just support each other. You know, if you're trying to figure out what might work to do this or do that, somebody in the room will invariably know how or, or have some experience. And so, yeah, that was the dream child. Um, she did that for a couple of years and then she brought it to the CCB and uh, Jim Prowse saw some value in the program. So he took her in as a, as a full-time employee and said, well, let's run that GTT program for, for the Canadian Council of the Blind. And that's where it's been ever since. And it's across the country now. Yeah, well, they, they've got Kim. <clears throat> uh, Kim Kilpatrick is the GTT coordinator in Ottawa. And then they've got David Green, who's a full-time trainer working out of Ottawa. And in late 2014, just as that EATI gig we were talking about a minute ago, just as that was coming to an end, uh, because BCITS, who had been running the program, didn't get the new contract. Uh, the new contract was going over to the Neil Squire Society, I think. Yep. And so that when that gig came to an end, they laid us all off. And I, when Jim Prowse found out that I was unemployed, he says, Albert, you want to come back and work for us again and do this GTT program in the West? And so he hired me in late 2014 um, to, to coordinate GTT out here, uh, basically from the Manitoba-Ontario boundary West. And so that that's where we've been. You know, From there, we've grown it into a blog and a podcast and a WhatsApp group. And you know, we, we were having several different monthly meetings uh, over a conference call, uh, GTT Beginners, and we had GTT North Northern Ontario, um, the, the GTT National Call, and then with the COVID shutdown, we threw in a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, sort of open chat, check-in meetings that are still running. So lots of change. Yeah, and it, you know, I'm a CCB member and have been for a couple years now, and the one thing I've noticed is that the CCB seems to have a focus on community and togetherness. You know, there's, there's CCB chapters in Coquitlam and, you know, pretty much across the country, there's, there's a CCB chapter where you can get together with other people and just whether have coffee, tea, play crib, do whatever. It's, it's a getting together with each other and supporting each other kind of movement. And I don't really see that happening with any other organizations. So GTT, is, is very similar in that manner. Um, and now going virtual, I, I see, you know, we're bringing people together from across the country that would never have had the support from each other that we currently do. Exactly. And it's been one of the, one of the brilliant things they did a few years ago. They, you know, they, they started to walk away from the old form White King Club where, you know, that's how people just came. And, and let, let's face it, the CCB doesn't do a huge amount of advocacy. We do some. And, you know, but primarily, though, with social and recreation and, and sort of that, that getting together is certainly the, the, their bigger priority. Um, and, and what they started to notice, well, one of the disconnects that, that is long running at the Canadian Council of the Blind is that nationally and divisionally, it's called the Canadian Council of the Blind. Locally, it was always referred to as a white king club. Right. 
So there was always that disconnect. Uh, you know, the, the public is a bit confused. Well, yeah, they would be if you called it one thing over here and another thing over there. And so they started to try and rename themselves to, you know, CCB Kamloops Chapter as opposed to White King Club. <clears throat> that transition isn't complete because people will resist change. <laughs> um, and so, and but what they started to notice is that we don't care what your interests are. Let's come together as a group and let's make that a chapter. So then next thing you know, you had, you know, a CCB cribbage chapter in Calgary and you'd have a bowling chapter over here and you'd have a, a blind curling chapter over there. And so they, they just started to say, well, you don't have to be a white cane club. You can be anything you want to be. Uh, we've got book clubs and all kinds of stuff. So it be, they started to form local chapters based on, <clears throat> excuse me, my COVID cough, <clears throat> based on, on interests as opposed to just general blindness stuff. So it, it's been a real, I think they've got something like 84 chapters across across the country and lots of different um, different kinds of interests. We can be anything we want to be. So it's been a, a ton of fun. You know, this GTT thing, and I've said before, uh, Jim Prowse loves to hear it, but, it, you know, it's the best job. And, and honest to God, it is the best. Both the jobs I've had with the CCB were, uh, you know, were the very best jobs I've ever had. I, I had fun. I didn't dare tell him how much fun I was having because he was still paying me. So I wanted to keep that a little bit subdued. But it just was a ton of fun. It is precisely the way I think that blind and vision impaired folks need to uh, need to learn how to be blind. You know, I, I learned a few skills in the early days from CNIB professionals, but where I really learned how to be blind was by being in the room with a bunch of other folks who had been there or folks who were just getting there. But, you know, it's that whole peer mentoring, getting together, learning from each other, I think is just the most powerful way for any of us to, um, to learn how to adjust to something as, as life-altering as you know, blindness is. Yeah, I was just going to say how important mentoring is. You know, when I lost my sight, CNIB put me <clears> with with a guy in Kamloops who we all know, you know, Todd Harding, uh, similar background to, to you and me. And, you know, he was in an accident, so was I. And he, he was my mentor, you know, and how important that was in my just dealing with being blind, um, you know, that life can go on. And you see that in the GTT groups, you know, it's, it's not who knows what the best it's, how can I support you? How can I help you? Let's all bring, bring our ideas and, and come together and figure this out. So, you know, like I mentioned the other day to you, Albert, you know, you need to take a lot of pride in, in the people that, you know, you taught and, and take away the things that, you know, you learned from, from others as well. So, you know. Well, that you know, I learned from guys like Phil Croson and and Don Jones and some of those guys, you know, Isabel Beveridge. There were there were folks. We we can always point back to the people from whom you know we got just that right kick in the pants or the right you know arm around the shoulder kind of thing, and and both of those are important too. I, I appreciate just as much the kicks in the backside I got as uh, as the hugs that uh, that kept me going right and and you know one of the the really interesting things about 
the the GTT program, and we we haggled over this in the early days. I sometimes I wouldn't put out an agenda. I'd just say, you know, let's get together. Let's just talk about technology. And and then folks would stay away because, well, I, I don't know what's on the agenda, so I don't know if I'm interested. <laughs> and then I'd put out an agenda and say, okay, we're going to talk about this. And then three people would call me and say, well, I, you know, I'm not interested in that. I already know how to do that, so I'm not coming to the meeting. And I thought, ah, oh, what, what do you – so I, I, I came up I came up with a bit of a line. I'd say to folks, look, please do not self-select out. Because if you choose not to come to the meeting, you might have robbed all of us in the room of one of the one or two of your little nuggets of brilliance that you could have delivered. Right. So you know, don't just look at these kinds of programs as what you can learn from it, but try and come on in and help teach some of us some of what you know. So don't self-select out. For God's sake, just come on in anyway, even if you if you already know it all. We might need to know that too. And oh, uh, Todd Harding, you, you mentioned Todd. Uh, that's another one of those things. Uh, Rob, you mentioned it earlier with this thing about you know losing your sight suddenly or losing it slowly. Which is better? And you know, we talked about how you know attitude and the, the decisions we make about it is really the only thing that matters. But Todd Harding is the same age as me, mm-hmm. and he when he had his accident, he was living here on the island. I think he was living in Nanaimo. I think he was headed to Cowichan, to Duncan, to pick up his girlfriend or something when he had his crash. And he woke up, you know, after his coma and all that stuff, he woke up blind. The other thing about Todd, you know, he, he can't smell. He lost his sense of smell in that accident as well. Um, and so, so Todd Harding, same age as me, lost his sight same time as me. Like he was 22, 23, something like that. And so was I when I started to lose my sight. And, um, but I followed him. I took, when he left CNIB in Prince George to go work for the federal government in the uh, employment area, that's when I landed that job up in Prince, Prince, right? So that's 10 years later, 10, 12 years later, he had already been employed. He had run his own moving business for a while. Then he went to work for CNIB. So a couple of years after his accident, he had made his adjustments and off he went back into the workforce. Here I was, you know, some 10, 12 years later, finally went totally blind, had to completely retool and was now getting back out and into the workforce. And and so I've always said that when you lose your sight, suddenly you get on with life, you you learn what you're going to learn, you, re, you retool and reskill and off you go. And what I found is through that slow visual decline for those 10 or 12 years, I was never adjusted. I was constantly adjusting. It, it always felt to me like I never had my feet firmly planted on the ground. It was always standing on this ever-moving sands of, of vision loss. And uh, so for me, when, when I think about, you know, is it better to lose it quickly or lose it slowly? You know, if I, if I was to go back to 21, 22 years of age, now, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have let them do that laser work. Like just knowing what I know now, I would say, no, you know what? I'm going to be blind by the time I'm 34 anyway. Might as well, might as well make it right now and let's get on with life. Um, so, I, I, but again, you would have never convinced me to do that at the time when I had to make those decisions because I didn't know then what I know now. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we always have to support everybody to, to walk their own journey and do it their own way. But I just found that really interesting, never being adjusted, but constantly having to adjust. 
and low vision is the hardest work anybody's ever going to do anywhere. You're always trying to see something with eyes that right. just don't deliver good information effectively. And boy, it's just what a struggle it is to try and see with eyes that don't see so well. I always love that city councillor in, where was she? Mission? Abbotsford? Jenny? I remember her telling us a story once. I was at a CNIB gig in Vancouver, and she was at the table, and she said she was standing there in front of a local drugstore or something one day waiting for all of her kids to, you know, to, to reconvene, and, and they'd be headed for home. She was a dog guide user, and, uh, and so she was standing there, and somebody came up to her, and the, the person went, Dear, I just don't know how you do it. And she looked up at her, and she says, Ma'am, we do it with the lights off like everybody else. <laughs> and so, you know, I always say to people, you know, blindness changes a lot of things about life, but not everything. And mm-hmm. you know, the, big, the biggest thing you need in order to survive this thing and to, to thrive uh, despite any, any major setback in our lives is, is to, have, to have that, um, that attitude that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to find a way. You're going to get there anyhow. Um, you know, for me, I was lucky that in my early early 20s, I had, a, I had a really smart and astute individual in my life who, you know, gave me the right kick in, in the right part of my anatomy when I needed it. And, and I also, I was also a really miserable, angry individual, pissed off at the world, like, why me? What the hell? And, you know, what have I done to deserve this? And then I started, I stood there one day in my, in my kitchen and I looked forward at all of the elders in my family who were living into their 90s. And I'm thinking, holy crap, I got 70 more years of this, mm-hmm. of, of being miserable and angry and pissed off at everything. And so I, I stood there that day and I said, you know, Albert, whatever the hell happens, the one thing I'm going to find is I'm going to find a way to be happy. Because I, I'm not putting up with 70 years of, of abs, you know, just constant misery and, and anger. And I had no idea how powerful the decisions we make are in our lives. But, you know, so that day I just decided, okay, the hell with it. I'm going to be happy regardless. And it, that has turned out. And, and I firmly believe it, it has happened that way for me because of the decision I made that day. Not because of anything anybody else taught me or anything that's come along it it's happened that way because i made that decision that day well and i think unless rob or steve have anything we will leave it on that note that's a positive note that is a good positive note and we have to say congratulations on your retirement enjoy yeah, absolutely well earned uh, sir i thank you i thank you the first stat holiday i'm not getting paid for woohoo <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you. It's been a hoot. I really appreciated uh, working with all of you guys over the years. It's been a lot of fun. And I, as I've said to everybody, I'm I'm leaving the job, but I'm still blind. So I'm still I'm still going to be hanging out in the community. I'm still going to be part of the blindness and technology community because that's uh, that's my passion. That's that's what I love, and uh, that's what I need in order to survive. So I'm still here. Well, go find a, a way to. Uh, was it um, Morna Bray said the other day, Albert? You amaze me at how you constantly reinventing yourself so i guess i'm i'm back in the um <laughs> back in the rebranding phase i gotta figure out what's next <laughs> that's right okay well guys right. uh, thank you for taking the time on your uh, stat holiday but uh, that was fun oh thank Excellent. you really appreciate yeah, it thanks for coming 
Well, man, he is still booging his ass off. I wonder yep, how retirement yep. is going to treat him. He's going to be one of those guys that just is never going to really actually retire. He's not going to be able to be relax. Hey, exciting little development that I've just discovered on uh, on Twitter. Yes, what? Did, did you know that it's possible to use a screen reader on a Peloton bike? One of those, you know, freestanding exercise bikes. Really? Got a, yeah, they've got a coaching program on the bike to, to, you know, motivate you to exercise more. But apparently you can actually add uh, talkback to the Peloton bike and have an accessible Peloton no bike. No way. Yeah. Is it? Uh, I, wonder what the, I wonder what the process for doing that is. Like uh, how complicated it is. Well, there is a, uh, a blog. Uh, it is blog.onepeloton.com. And uh, there's an article there called How to Use a Screen Reader on the Peloton Bike. Well, we'll have to look for that. Maybe we'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. Hey, Ryan. Rob. Where can people find us? They can find us online at www.atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email, uh, if they so desire, at cowbell at atbanter.com. And just a reminder, we're still giving away some jerseys. Yeah. So get your flurry jersey. Send in an email, cowbell at atbanter.com. Subject line, I want to be flurry. Is it the flurry? I thought it was the Minot jersey. I don't know. That wasn't the Min- <laughs> wait, who's, whose idea was this podcast? <laughs> no, I, who, wait, who's number one? Is Barkley number I, one? I, I thought you were number one because it was your idea for the podcast. Man, maybe. I don't know. I forget. Wait. Okay, whatever. We'll just, I'll just, we'll, we're giving away a jersey, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got your jersey. No, I think, there. no, I think you're, you look at it. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that, uh, I don't oh. know. We're still giving it away. Anyways, cowbell at atbanter.com if you want a lovely AT Banter jersey, free of charge, just for being a listener. Yeah. Uh, right. Hey, where else can people find us? Well, they can find us on the social medias. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, then that is going to about do it for us this week. Big thanks to Albert Ruel for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 